All right, Acts chapter 18, we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, I say it every week, and I might as well just keep saying it and plan on saying it. I'm growing to love this book more and more as I'm studying it. I pray that what we're doing here together on Sunday mornings, and then also what you're doing in your own time uh, throughout the week, uh, reading Acts and studying it and thinking about the things that we're talking about, have been beneficial to you and continue to be beneficial to you. As we kind of go through what in the world God was doing in the early church. Acts 18. So the first half of Acts 18, where we have just come from, we were talking last week about encouragement. Where do you find encouragement? Who encourages you? What encourages you? We saw in Paul's life, he has been going through so many difficulties in the last couple chapters as it's been given to us. Chapter 16 and 17, as Luke writes this book. And this history, he has been beaten, he has been run out of town, and that's happened multiple times. He has been accused, he has been brought before the leaders of these cities and towns. He has been just absolutely opposed at almost every single turn. And if you have ever gotten like that in your life, whether it's a physical pain that you have, whether it's a hardship from other believers, whether it's other religious people who have brought you into difficulty, or if it's just life is hard, your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your extended family having to deal with parents or grown kids, trying to learn and to figure out how can I keep going? And so we looked at that a little bit, and we saw the different ways last week that God used to encourage Paul. He brought old people back into his life, friends in ministry. He brought new people into his life, Priscilla and Aquila, who we'll see again here in the second half of Acts chapter 18. Old people, new people. He brought just the circumstances of life and how he cared for the situation in Corinth where Paul was and He said, hey, look, even though they're bringing you before the ruler of this city, this town, this area, the gospel still has the freedom to be spread and to be spoken of plainly in the open. God even gave Paul, you know, a vision and said, look, Paul, Christ came to him and he said, I know you've been through a lot lately. And what I want to Make sure you are aware of to to give you just enough to keep getting through this next chapter in your life. The next year and a half or two years as he was in Corinth. That at least you're not going to be beaten this time. Yeah, you're going to be brought before the ruler, but they're they're not going to attack you and harm you at least. Expect attacks, but at least physically you'll be spared this time around. And you may, you may hear that and you may think, how is that encouraging? Like, okay, well, maybe, but the next time he's going to get beaten and flogged and imprisoned. But for Paul, I mean, that was a bit of a relief. And for us, when we have it so easy in so many regards, when it comes to living out our faith, it's hard for us to sometimes feel the extent to which those encouragements would have been felt by Paul. And so we looked at all those encouragements Hopeful that when we face difficult times, however simple, however minute the issue may be, however large it may seem in the moment, 
we can trust that whatever the Lord is doing, that the Lord is doing it, and that we are under his care and control, and that we can trust him. And so we continue on in Paul's journey as he leaves Corinth and seeks to head back to Jerusalem and then kind of on his third missionary journey. So we conclude his second missionary journey. This is where we are in Acts chapter 18. We conclude his second missionary journey and we start his third one. And so I'm going to read Acts chapter 18 verses 18 through 28. And we're going to see in here, sort of as I've titled it, if you even notice it in the bulletin, which I don't really care much for titles. Um, I just do it because some people like it. But the anatomy, <laughs> the, the anatomy of a learner. So uh, kind of think about that as we read through this. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. It says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, that was in Corinth, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sintre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, or Phrygia. Why do I always have, like, that's the hardest part I think of Acts is just trying to name all these towns. Um, <laughs> pronounce them. He went through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So as we go through this text... We'll see a few different things, really kind of almost in each verse of the anatomy of a learner. A learner, and that's just another word for disciple. When you think of what it means to be a disciple, like what does that word disciple mean to you? What conjures up in your mind, in your spirit when you hear that word? Words can mean a lot of different things. I was talking, you know, uh, to y'all, one of y'all yesterday morning, and it was like, yeah, I mean, words can have different meanings in different contexts, different cultures. So what, is a, what does it mean for you to be a disciple? I think another word that you can use is you're a learner. You're a student. Now, there are many here. Um, I mean, some here and some are off to college and some are, have just started school in the past week or two in this area and all over. August seems to be the month to start school back up, right? So there's students. I mean, you know what it's like to have to get back in the routine of the classroom stuff. Or maybe, you know, you're actually doing things in person and you're in rotations, right? You know, I mean, you're kind of hands-on a little bit more. Or maybe you're just stuck back, you know, and you've got a teacher now and you've got to sit there for the next nine months and try to make it through, you know? I mean, it's just the life of a student. But as a student, 
Do you view yourself as a learner? Do you view yourself as a disciple of whatever institution it is that you have put yourself under or that you are under? When you think of being a disciple, think about being a learner. And when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, I think that's where we need to go. We need to think of ourselves as those who are constantly capable of learning. So the anatomy of a learner. Verse 18 After this, so after he was in Corinth for a year and a half, he still stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. So he was planning on going all the way back to Jerusalem. And with him, as he traveled, he took Priscilla and Aquila. Again, we met them last week and then the first part of chapter 18. Um, These Jews who had come from Rome who are of the same trade as Paul. So Paul not only shared Christ with them, He also shared the trade with them, and so they were fellow partners and workers. I mean, literally and spiritually. And so he made good friends with them. And he recognized their capacity for hospitality, their capacity for teaching, their capacity for just ministry. And what you have is a partnership. Paul constantly in Acts, and it's not just Paul, it's also Peter that we've seen in the past. They're not doing these things alone. There is a partnership. When it comes to being a learner, a student, a disciple, you are not in this alone. Right? I mean, you know, as Pastor Don said, you know, a few minutes ago, we're better together. Like, like you are not alone. The whole point of why we are a part of a larger denomination is not so that we can submit to some larger denomination. It's so that we can partner together because we can do more together and because we don't want to be by ourselves. We don't want to be alone. How much more difficult is it when you're by yourself, when you feel alone? And Paul, when it comes to ministry, he doesn't want to do this stuff by himself. He wants people alongside him to minister with him. And he realizes, as you might have caught here in what we read when we read the full passage, was that Paul doesn't have to be there to do all the work. Like like the pastor shouldn't be the one who has to do all the things. The, The missionary isn't the one who is expected to do all the things. Like the point of the pastor, the missionary, the minister, the whoever leader is, is supposed to raise people up so that they are doing ministry together. So Paul, you see him throughout Acts, and again here in our text, bringing alongside of him Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, and he basically drops them off in Ephesus. There's a partnership that I think we need to make sure that we are focusing on when it comes to us being disciples, that we're not disciples just individually. We are disciples together. God has called you to an individual faith, but that faith is not lived out individually. You have a personal relationship with Christ, but that relationship extends beyond just yourself. You can share Christ with others. And I'm not just talking about proclaiming the gospel to somebody. I'm talking about like sharing Christ. Like you have the spirit. I have the spirit. We have Christ together. We have at least something in common. I mean, it was a joke of, of a couple months ago. But someone, when we were gathering to kind of start doing a community group, was like, 
you and I are nothing alike. We have absolutely nothing in common other than Christ. And that's what, like, that's what it can be. And if at the end of it all, if we have nothing else in common or to share, you know, well, I'm homeschool and you're public school. Well, you know, I'm a guy and you're a girl. Like, if we have absolute every difference, it doesn't matter. We at least have Christ. Then we can share that together and we can build each other up so that I can see you working and you can see me working and we can work side by side, hand in hand. And whenever it comes time for us to to leave one another, we can trust that the work that God is doing in you, that we are, are even still a part of. That how, how I've ministered to you, how you've ministered to me, lives on beyond just the time that we were actually physically together. I've got to keep going, otherwise we're never going to get out of here. Um, partnership. An aspect of a part of being a disciple is doing it together, ministry with others. But I think one of the things, too, that we see here from Paul is a, a continued faithfulness. So he had with him Priscilla and, Aqu- and Aquila. And that second half of verse 18, so this is at the port in Corinth. He cut his hair, so before they actually set sail. He cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Paul was faithful to his vow, and so that's why he was able to cut his hair. This would have been akin, uh, something like the Nazarite vow that you would find in the book of Numbers. It wasn't exactly a Nazarite vow because that typically had to be done around Jerusalem in the Holy Land. But it was a similar one. And this is Paul, a Christian, who is making a vow and is completing a vow. Maybe you think to yourself, I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea. I've never, I've never made a vow other than like you know, a marriage vow. So, so what does that even look like? What does that even mean? Is that legitimate to do? Can we still do that as Christians in a post-Christian world? Can we do that as Christians when we already have the Old and New Testaments put together? Is it appropriate for me to take a vow and to live out that vow for some period of time and then to complete that vow? Well, apparently it was for Paul. And so I don't know how anti-vow you are or anti-maybe fasting. Like we read Isaiah 58 and it talks about fasting in there. But, I mean, that's what fasting is to an extent, right? You're making a vow to say, for some period of time, I'm going to set apart myself and some capacity so that I can focus on my relationship with Christ. So that I can focus on submitting myself to his lordship in this particular area in my life or in my entire life. And you're devoting yourself To saying, God, you're more worth. You're worth more than this thing that this world has to offer. You're worth more than X, Y, and Z. I I mean, First Corinthians chapter seven, Paul talks about to the Corinthians who he's just leaving. He talks about, you know, look, if you're married and you make a commitment that hey, you're going to abstain. From what you can legitimately do as a married couple, like, I mean, do it for a time. But then, you know, make sure you fulfill your marriage vows appropriately when it comes back time to get back together. I mean, so even in that, it's like, that's the idea, I think, and maybe it's just simple enough for us to think of it as fasting uh, from something. Committing ourselves to something. And so it's not just not doing something, but maybe it is doing something that we haven't done before. 
And like, I'm going to do this every day for three months. Like, I'm going to try to create a new pattern of living so that I can be different than how I was before. So that I can make sure that I'm not just doing the same stuff over and over again. But that God has the capacity to change me and that I want to use the means that I have at my disposal to allow him to do that. Like, like I can't just wait for God. Like I'm not just waiting for some tractor beam of light to show up in front of my face to say, hey, okay, now I know what the answer is. Like I'm, I'm searching after that. I'm, I'm searching in his word for the truth and how that applies to my life. And so I'm actively engaged in doing something, not just refraining from negative things or refraining from good and fine things, but I'm actively after being thankful to God for what it is he has given me. And I think for Paul, it had to have been, hey, probably some aspect of you've given me this vision and I'm committing to the fact that if you said that I'm not going to be attacked here for a year and a half, I'm going to commit myself to be here in this town, in the city for a year and a half, faithfully proclaiming the gospel to these people in this city, which is just a rancid, wretched city, the worst in the empire maybe. But I'm going to keep doing it because you have called me to do this. And so I'm, I'm making a vow that you said you're going to protect me and I'm going to live in that protection and be faithful in that. And now that he's leaving, maybe, maybe that's what the vow was. I don't know. Maybe it was something completely different. But he said, I'm committing myself. And now that commitment, I can thank God that he has brought me to this point. There's a, a faithfulness. And, and the faithfulness you continue seeing in verse 19. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So this faithfulness to the calling that God has put on his life. And the ministry that he has done almost every single town that he's entered, he begins by going to the synagogue and reasoning with the Jews and proclaiming the gospel to the people who should have been waiting for this promised Messiah. And he's saying this Jesus is the promised Messiah. Believe the truth. And so he's faithful to the calling that God has put on his life. So there's the faithfulness of a disciple, of a learner. It's a faithfulness to Christ it's a faithfulness to the mission that he has put us on to go and make disciples. And it's a faithfulness in the midst of difficulty and diversity. And what's kind of strange here in verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, which like the only, I think, other time really that Paul has gotten that fully open invitation has been when he went to Berea. And they said, hey, like, we want to hear more and we want to keep hearing more. And we're really going to, like, try and digest what it is that you're saying. We're not just writing you off immediately, initially. And so here you have that sort of reaction again. And what does Paul do? He, he's like, nah, I'm good. I'm leaving. Like, it's so strange. I mean, when you're reading through Acts and you come across this, and he goes to the synagogue and they ask him to stay. Stay. We want to hear more, Paul. Like, we can't get enough of this. And he's like, nah. I've got someone to be. <laughs> like, that's so... Seems out of character. Out of, out of sorts. But I think that's where it comes back to the fact that Paul realizes it's not just him. He's not alone in this ministry. He's been able to leave Timothy and Silas and Luke, and others back in those towns where he's already been. He's able to leave Priscilla and Aquila here in Ephesus. 
and know that they're in good and capable hands. He doesn't have to be there to do all the things. So there's a partnership, there's a faithfulness. And then we start to interact with Apollos. So, um, I mean, verses 22 and 23, I don't want to skip over them, but basically this is just Luke's way of catching us all the way back around to where Paul comes back to Ephesus. So he leaves Ephesus, he goes to Caesarea, he goes up to the church in Jerusalem. So when you're going up to a place in Scripture, it's typically up to Jerusalem. And then you're going back down. So he goes back down to the church in Antioch, which had sent him out on his missionary journeys to report to them, to strengthen them, to spend time with them. And then he went back through the regions of Galatia where he had first done his missionary. His first missionary journey had happened. He went back to those churches. He didn't just leave them. He was faithful even to them. And he strengthened them and he made sure that they were doing well, that they knew what was happening, that they didn't have any problems. And if they did, he was there to help encourage them, to help correct them, to help teach them. Paul's not just trying to start stuff and then leave and who cares what happens. He's a well-rounded missionary and pastor and apostle. Like he cares about his people. That's why he writes all these letters that we find in the New Testament. He cares about these people. He wants to see them walking in the truth. And so he does that. And then we come across Apollos. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. So that's a new town for us. A new city. Came to Ephesus. So when we're thinking about what does it look like for me to be a learner. For the people we see in scripture. As these churches are being started. As Christianity is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. What does it look like for leaders, for regular people to be a disciple, to be a learner. For Apollos, he was an eloquent man. Now, look, I don't think that's a requirement. You see me standing up here, I'm not very eloquent. You know, I mean, you've probably heard eloquent people speak. There are those who have mastered the art of rhetoric, who who can speak in front of people, who can capture attention, who can just awe you and amaze you, and who you can sit there listening to And saying, wow, like this person knows what what they're talking about. I mean, (laughs) there are people on the radio who can talk for hours on end, right? I'm talking about this, you know, with one of the other y'all yesterday morning. There are people who can talk for hours on end on the radio and you're just like, wow, like this person is competent in in what they know and what they're talking about. And they can talk about it for days. And you can listen to them for days. I mean, because they're on the radio, and so you have to listen to them. You can't see them, you know. I mean, now you've got vlogs and, you know, video podcasts and stuff. But he's eloquent. But he's not, like, that's not the only thing that's getting him around. Like, he's competent in the Scriptures. That's what it says next, competent in the Scriptures. And I think that's one thing that if we're looking at the anatomy of a learner, of a disciple, of a student of Jesus Christ, we can be that. This is not just something unique to Apollos. He has spent the time, apparently, learning the scriptures. So at this point, this would have been the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. 
He knew the scriptures. He knew what was given to him at that moment in time. And he knew it well. So often, it is easy for us to expect somebody else to learn all the things and then just to tell us. They would come back and give me a report. Like, I don't want to actually go do the work. Just give me the cliff notes. I am all about the cliff notes, right? I mean, it didn't always serve me very well in high school, but if I could, that's where I was at, right? I am not naturally a reader. Just give me what I need to know and I'll go from there. But when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with the God, the creator of this universe, there's only so much that you can skip out on. There's only so much that you can jump to a level without actually having climbed the stairs yourself. Right? I mean, you can take an elevator at, cer- at certain points to get you to some other level, but at a certain point, you've got to walk up these steps. You know, I mean, and on Sunday morning, sometimes they seem, you know, pretty exhausting. This man was competent in the scriptures. Why, why is it important for us to know the scriptures? Well, how else are you supposed to know what the truth actually is? How, how can you be sure what it is that we believe? How can you know what's right and what's wrong? This, this is a, a text that I could probably say every single Sunday, no matter what the sermon is. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. So number one, it's God's own voice, God's own words. What God has given to us to know as truth. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Right? That word training. A learner. A student. You're a trainee. You are doing the work to get to a certain point so that you can learn how to point and shoot that gun. Yeah, like you can hold the gun. Anybody can hold the gun. But can you hold it right? Can you shoot it right? Can you aim it properly? Can you change the focus on it to where you're actually hitting the target exactly dead square in the middle? Like, I mean, that's part of the whole training process for military people. And then they have to do, you know, all the fancy marching and stuff. Um, But that, you know, probably isn't as difficult. You're training. You're training your mind, your heart, your soul to trust what it is that God has said and to obey it. I think one of the things that is all too common, and we find this, like you could probably pick any chapter in the Gospels and you will come across Jesus interacting with some sort of religious leader or party and it is a constant refrain for him to say you think you know the scriptures and you have memorized half of them but you don't really know them like 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 you can spout off the entire first five books of the old testament to me but you're not actually living it out you haven't understood the message that runs through it all you are not loving your neighbor as yourself like, like, you're not doing it. You can be, you can have knowledge, but if that knowledge doesn't turn into action and obedience, I don't know what it is you're doing. You have deceived yourself. 
So a, a learner is not just competent in the scriptures by itself, but competent to obey. I mean, true competency is not just an absorption of information. Competency is being able to apply that. It's the wisdom that comes along with it. It's truly realizing and recognizing this is what this means for me and my life now and in the future. This is the truth of who I have been and who I am. That I am a sinner. That I deserve God's wrath poured out on me. But what Christ has done for me in sacrificing himself on that cross is he has taken that wrath and that sin and that payment that I was supposed to pay that I couldn't pay. He's taken it on himself. He's paid the debt. He's freed me from that burden. And now I've been given a new life in Christ to live. And I trust that he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father because he did rise from the dead. And he is alive and he remains faithful to us. That he is not just some dead or non-existent or far out there deity who doesn't care about me and my life. He is actively involved and cares for me. And competency comes to a point where we recognize that this means something for me in my life and that it requires some sort of repentance, which means a change. Like, like I can't keep doing the same things I've always been doing. Competency has to say for training, for reproof, for, reproof, for rebuke. Like I'm, I'm, I'm still going to do things wrong. Like I, I still am going to be having to learn what not to do and what to do. And all of this then comes to a fervency. It will be the last thing we'll talk about this morning in this. It says he's competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Fervent in spirit. In Romans 12, when we've had our first few meetings here in this space in the beginning of June, we kind of did a little journey through Romans chapter 12 in looking at what it means to be a people who live in community with one another. And we centered on verses 9 through 13, Romans 12. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. It says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, I don't know if like these, those two passages, the one we're in in Acts 18 and that in Romans chapter 12 are supposed to be put together. But there's a whole lot of correlation between those two things. I mean, that showing hospitality, that's what Priscilla and Aquila do. I mean, that's the other thing I ought to talk about if I weren't running out of time. They're showing hospitality. They're serving one another. They're speaking the truth to one another in love. 
They're not being slothful, but they're being zealous and fervent in spirit. That is how Apollos is described. And that's where it comes again to not just a knowledge of the word, but as one commentator put it, knowledge on fire. It's the application of that word. So as to bring other people into that circle of knowledge and trust and obedience. It's saying, you know, as the prophet Jeremiah talks about, like, like this word in me is a fire. Like I can't hold it in. This is what the proclamation of the gospel ought to be for you when you're preaching it to yourself. And then also, then subsequently, when you are proclaiming it to other people around you. This ought to be a fire that is in you that you cannot contain. That's what it means to be fervent. Strange word, but I mean, when's the last time you used the word fervent in your everyday language? Fervent. Like you have, it's knowledge on fire. You know what it is in the world you're talking about and you're passionate about it. I mean, anybody can be passionate about nonsense. There, there's plenty of nonsense going around in this world. And there's plenty of passionate people. It doesn't, you don't have to go very far to find someone who's passionate about something. And something that you're not passionate about. And you're just like, I don't think we can be friends because I have no idea where you're at. <laughs> right? We know people who are passionate and they're passionate about ridiculousness. Or just things that don't matter. Things that we don't care about. Things that we know we can't grow to really care about. I'm happy for you. Know those things. Do those things. Have fun with those things. Good for you. That's just not me. But it's not just passion. It, it's, and it's not just knowledge. It's a, it's a passionate knowledge. It's knowing the truth and not being able to rest until we recognize... That God is the one who has given us this passion for his truth. That we couldn't conjure this up on our own. And that it's even not just us. But it's this fervency in spirit. It's this fervency in the spirit inside of us. Saying, I've gifted you. I've taught you. I've shown you. I've revealed to you this truth. Now do something with it. Use it. Bring other people into a knowledge of the truth and the way that you love them and how you act towards them and the things that you say in love. I mean, anybody can be passionate and be a jerk about it to other people. So often we're jerks about what it is that we believe and what it is that those people are doing wrong that we disagree with. And if all we ever focus on is our passion for the truth and how awful those other people are and how wrong they are, then we're never actually bridging the gap with the love of Christ to say, yeah, I disagree with you, but I can still serve you and love you. I can still use my understanding of my responsibility to love God and to love my neighbor, no matter whether they are anything like me or not, that that's what God has called me to as a learner, as a disciple, as a student of his, to learn to love him and to learn to love other people as I love myself. And if I can't love that other person who's nothing like me, like myself, then there's something wrong with me, not something wrong with them. 
And so often in the Gospels, we have all these religious people who know the truth and don't actually use it properly. And that's what Jesus hates. That's what he says he hates. That's what over and over and over again he despises about the religious leaders that he comes across time and time again. And if all we ever do is point a finger and say, hey, I'm passionate about this, and you better be passionate about it too, and, and never actually building a connection and, and showing them love, to invite them to come see the truth, hear the truth, believe the truth, then we're just spitting into the wind. And maybe that is a, a, a good way to, to sort of close out a bit of this passage is what Priscilla and Aquila do for Apollos is they show him hospitality. They don't correct him in front of everybody else. They don't say, hey man, you're way off in that. They're hospitable. They continue what they've already done in the past with Paul. They continue it, and they continue to do it because it seems like the church in Ephesus probably meets in their home when Paul writes other letters. And how are we going to get people to give us the time of day if we don't, like, share our lives with them? I mean, it's so easy. I, I think, I mean, okay, I'll try to keep this short. One of the great things about like coffee shops is they've created another space for us to get together and to, and to live out community together. But the unfortunate aspect of one thing that it's done is it, it's, it's also then detracted from who we ought to be as hospitable people and welcoming people into our own homes. We say, hey, let's meet there at McDonald's or let's meet there at the coffee shop instead of saying, like, come see me in my life like in the raw. Like come see what my house looks like. Come, come see what my life looks like on a regular basis. Come know me for who I really am and not just this pretense that I can put up. And it's a willingness to, to learn. A willingness to grow. A willingness to open ourselves up to the differences that other people have yet still holding firm to the truth that we know and have been taught. And being able to be corrected like Apollos was, saying, you know, if I'm doing something wrong, I want you to be able to tell me that. I want, I want you to be willing to allow me to tell you that. It's a two-way street here. I don't know everything. I'm still learning. And I hope that you don't think you know everything either. Because you don't. I mean... Don's over there been in ministry for, you know, way longer than I've been alive. <laughs> I think he lived in Texas before I was born in Texas. He doesn't know everything. He knows a lot. He knows a lot of people. He knows a lot of stuff. He knows a lot of what people have been through. He doesn't know everything. I ain't even close to any of that. 
There's still stuff for us to learn. There's, there's still sin in our lives. There's still just unknowns. So do you have that heart? I mean, is that who you want to be? Like, do you want to be a disciple? I think these things we've talked about are evidences, are clear markers of what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a learner. It's having these things in our minds and our hearts, having this attitude of faithfulness, of trusting the work of the Spirit in other people. Studying the scriptures and being competent and then actually obeying it and encouraging others to obey it. Is that, does that describe you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the work of your son to even afford us the ability and the opportunity to be disciples. The grace and mercy that you have shown us. Lord, we don't deserve it. Help us not to think that. But you have given us this gift of grace. And so don't let us squander it. Don't let us sit on it. But give us a boldness and a fervency. And we'd commit ourselves to you. Commit ourselves to being learners. Learners who obey. Who are faithful to you. Lord, we pray. We need your strength. We need your help in doing it. So would you. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.